This is Food First Michigan on News Talk 760 WJR. Sponsored by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food secure state, and by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan. Now here are your hosts, Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome everyone, and thanks for listening. Food security is not just a Michigan challenge. It is in fact, a global one. The boom in population growth across the world from 1961 to the year 2000 increased the demand for food. Global estimates state that by the year 2050, just three short decades away, there will be 9.7 billion people and we will require approximately 70% more food then than what is consumed now. The solution, or solutions, both now and then, will require a multi-cross-sectored approach with emphasis on food loss and waste, including consumption of food purchased and distributed, agricultural productivity with metrics that measure impact on the climate and environment, and here at home in Michigan, it will require effective leadership that brings cross-sectors together like healthcare, education, business, government, and community-based organizations like our food banks. We'll need to incorporate technological ability to collect and analyze data, link systems, and work in a seamless collaborative approach. There is no other way. The challenge both globally and locally is too big to go it alone. Here to help us understand the value science plays in creating food security both globally and here at home is our friend, famous author, NPR podcast host of Serving Up Science, and honestly, more awards than Tiger Woods, is our colleague Cheryl Kirschenbaum, an influencer who shares both her knowledge and compassion to affect positive change across many of the systems that I mentioned. Cheryl joins me and Jerry Brisson next on this edition of Food First Michigan. Welcome everyone, thanks for listening. Jerry Brisson joins me here on a muted Zoom call with our guest, as promised, Cheryl Kirschenbaum. Cheryl, welcome back to the show. Thank you, it's such a treat to be able to speak to you both again. It's great to have you. And uh, Jerry, I, we, we talk, we quote Cheryl on this show all the time. I follow her on Twitter. It makes me sound so much more intelligent when I say what she said on Twitter. So, <laughs> Well, I agree. I agree with you wholeheartedly. It's great to have you back, Cheryl. And, and we do really admire what you do. So let's, let's let people know what you've been up to and the, and the kinds of things you've been looking into. I love the scientific approach and the data-driven decision-making. All that stuff is, is things we need to know more about, and I'm just eager to hear. Well, I'm always happy to talk about all of this. And I just have to pause and say, I admire everything that you both are doing. It's an inspiration that folks are thinking about meeting some of these challenges, especially when it comes to feeding people and especially feeding people here in Michigan. Well, we've had great, uh, quite the year, you know, with, uh, with the pandemic and um, our, our output, so to speak, has doubled. Um, 
probably more than doubled. J Jerry could give numbers about gleaners alone, mm -hmm. which is amazing. But across the network, you know, we we practically doubled the output, and we've done that because of the need, right? Mm -hmm. We just do that for fun, kicks and giggles. We did it because people need food, and you know, there's a there's food security, as Jerry said, is it, it's. I'm so happy that maybe this is a a new time or uh, we're going back to a better the good old days when science really was at the forefront and helped us make decisions about how we do this work and discover who's hungry and how we can best beat that need so Cheryl catch us up what's latest what's new what are you up to it, it's so much going on in your world um, so tell our listeners who and what and where well there's a lot of ways for me to answer that that's pretty general Dr. Uh, Knight but I, uh, I work at Michigan State University. I work in ag bio research, and we spend a lot of time thinking about meeting food security challenges. And of course, there have always been so many issues related to this that impact uh, whether or not people have enough to eat uh, here in Michigan and all around the world. And something that we've been spending a lot of time on in the last year or so is looking at how climate change will impact the food that's available and what we can do to meet demand as we have more people and fewer resources and the planet continues to change. So we've been hosting roundtable conversations. We actually have one coming up, if anyone listening is interested, February 12th. They are virtual in light of the pandemic and they are uh, free to watch. So um, you can find that information when it's posted at food.msu.edu. And we'd love to have an audience that uh, we take questions and we. We have a, an excellent lineup, uh, including chefs and experts in food safety um, and people thinking about how our tastes and attitudes about foods change and what that might mean for when maybe we have to shift what we eat because different things are growing in different conditions. Uh, and I can expand on all of that. But, uh, but, you know, big picture, I'm worried about people. We've seen a lot of people lose their jobs, lose their income, especially women. Job loss uh, is, I mean, it's it's not even comparable because women are often the, the, the folks whose job is considered dispendable when someone has to make the choice for who stays home with the kids. I, I see this in my family. I have two little boys, uh, four and one turned eight today, and they're home with us all the time while my husband and I are working full time. And it's just not an easy time for families. And so I think we're seeing people hurting and we're seeing more need and thank goodness both of you are out there meeting those needs as best we can right now. You know, one one of the things that I that I'm hopeful about in in things we're learning from the pandemic is that people are way more willing to to prepare meals at home. They're way more concerned about making sure those are healthy meals and all of the work that we've done over the last few years to reinforce with nutrition education, the food distributions that we do has created a much higher demand for fresh food. And so, so I really do hope that as we, as we, you know, obviously we're continuing to grapple with the pandemic, but eventually there's light at the end of the tunnel. The, we will find a way to get people back to work and, and restaurants and banquet centers and those things will be back open. We, we do believe eventually we will have less need. But in the meantime, we've learned some really good things about how we should be preparing food at home. And when we think about climate change and the things that are going to affect the global food supply, I'm hopeful this, this experience may actually end up helping us do a better job of preparing healthier, better, rightly portioned meals at home. 
I absolutely agree. And something I've been thinking about a lot related to that has to do with the fact that what we see in our surveys, we have this uh, food literacy survey out of Michigan State, and we see that more than half of people across the U.S. say they don't think about where their food comes from or how it was produced, which is wild considering uh, how much time and energy and how much of our resources get spent on that. And so as more of us are preparing meals at home, we're interacting with our food in different ways than maybe we've had uh, we've had time to or we've had need to before. Uh, I, I do think things will change again when the country and the world opens back up a lot, but it does give me hope that maybe we'll appreciate uh, we'll appreciate the the way that something gets from the farm to our plate a little bit more. And, and then I think there's also a side of this too about what's available to who, right? Because the people that are at home with their organic vegetables that they got at their fresh shop uh, might be a little more focused on uh, health and you know, able to spend the money to buy these more expensive products. But we're also seeing the effects of food deserts and places where maybe people want to do those things but don't have the access or don't have the time to take the bus all the way to retrieve something and bring it home. And maybe they're a little more dependent right now on fast foods and things that might not be so good for them. So I think there are many sides to that argument. I think this cross-sector collaborative approach is we have to have, we have, to have everybody in the room, right? Mm -hmm. it, and if we're going to address food security, it, it, nobody's going to be able to do it on an island and really uh, move us toward a solution. So what you guys just talked about there, I mean, there, there's, there's the need for scientists to be in the room, uh, food bankers to be in the room, community leaders, transportation, I mean, medical, education, all of it. And, then, and I think that that's coming and that's a day that's ahead of us. And, you know, I know that's happening in a lot of other places, some other places across the U.S., but I think that's the convening that has to happen here in Michigan and sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. So I, I appreciate the – it's just going to take that kind of leadership. So a couple of minutes left. So Cheryl, give us a response to that and the thought, and then we'll take a quick break and come back. And we want to talk about you being on a power trip. <laughs> that sounds so <laughs> Uh, that, that hopefully isn't me, but that's a program. I think you're right. And I'm really hopeful about not just getting the experts on those issues in the room, but getting people representative of those dealing with these challenges into the conversation. And I've seen a real shift in recent years to prioritize that. Uh, and it's certainly going to be happening at the national level. So I expect we'll see that more in Michigan and locally too. Well, the good news on that part is with the governor's Food Security Council, um, we're divided ourselves into seven work groups, and one of those is client perspectives. So who do we, who do we people who are dealing with this, um, helping to create the solution, owning it, so to speak, and helping us to come alongside of them. So it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of great things going on across the, the world, the U.S., and particularly here in Michigan. You're at the, the forethought of, of many of those, and, um, and it's great to have you here with us. Cheryl Kirschenbaum's our guest. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here. We're all three back in just a moment. Contact the Food Bank Council of Michigan at fbcmich.org. Now back to more Food First Michigan with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. 
Welcome back, everyone. Dr. Phil Knight, Jerry Rasson, our guest, Cheryl Kirschenbaum. We look so forward to having you on this show. I mean, it's like a highlight. In fact, Jerry's got two awards that this show won, that we won from the Michigan Association of Broadcasters, and I got to think you had a lot to do with that. <laughs> we just keep sending them those clips over and over. Yeah, but nobody is this good. I mean, come on. We think it might be where the power trip came from, but but I know we got to hear about that because even though we're saying this tongue-in-cheek right now, there's a real reason why it's important to focus on power as one of the key issues facing food insecurity and I think we should get right into that. Sure. Well, before I was in Michigan, a few years before, I spent a, a long time working for the University of Texas at Austin. And I was part of a group with Dr. Michael Weber called the Center for International Energy and Environmental Policy. And that group is focused on energy, which really encompasses every global challenge we face in ways that I think a lot of us don't realize. So much of what our research um, and our work focused on was food and agriculture. And it's such a natural fit to talk about the two together, but so many of us don't realize it. But when you start thinking about the amount of energy used to produce the food that we eat, and then how much of that is wasted, um, in like at the same time thinking about how we're at this moment, we, sh we should be conserving both of them, right? As much energy as we can, as much food as we can, for reasons like food insecurity, and also reasons like we live on this planet, so let's make sure it's stable for right. many, many generations to come. Uh, they really do go hand in hand. And so looking at everything from uh, how we plant, how we fertilize, how we harvest food, how we transport that food to market, uh, how it's stored, uh, how it's refrigerated, right? There's this process where we have to keep things fresh for as long as possible. Uh, what happens, how people get it from the market, what happens when they take it back home, how they prepare it, and how much of that ultimately gets dumped. And there's many other parts in that story that I didn't even mention. And so um, we spend a lot of, or we spent a lot of time thinking about what's wasted and how we could be more efficient and how we could support more people and communities along the way with providing food that isn't wasted. And so these are the kinds of things we think about. And when you alluded to Power Trip, Michael Weber, who I mentioned is at University of Texas at Austin, he wrote a book called Power Trip. And uh, some of our work we had done together wound, found its way into that book. And then ultimately the book became a documentary series that was on PBS and is now available on Amazon Prime. And the second episode specifically focuses on food. And that's where I came in. I got to be a part of that, which was a lot of fun and especially meaningful because he and I are very good friends and I was really happy to be able to be a part of that and support him. And the name of the documentary is Power, Power Trip, Trip the, the story, story of energy. energy. Exactly. And you're the star in, in episode two. Well, I don't know if I'd say the star. There's some pretty big names in there and I'm kind of like, you know, that person who hangs out in Michigan. But I'm glad to be that person who hangs out, that woman from Michigan in this case. <laughs> well, here, let's, I mean, if, if you had to tell the, the people listening to our show right now one or two really key things from that episode, what would you say they are? Oh, goodness. Um, I would say that we're not doing enough uh, in terms of how we produce food and use food uh, to be mindful of our future, our shared future. But at the same time, I'm very hopeful that technologies and attitudes are changing in ways 
that make me optimistic about where we're headed, whether it's uh, a different approach to sell by and use by dates that often don't matter as much as we think they do um, and lead to a lot of waste to these pretty neat new technologies where there's even someone out there who has developed a bag for lettuce, right? Because how many times do we get lettuce and we put it in the back of our fridge and it, we're not sure if it's spoiled, but we're just going to toss it because those stories about food poisoning are real scary. Um, there's someone who's developed a bag of lettuce that changes in color when the, uh, the leaves start producing a gas that means the lettuce is no longer good. So even packaging can influence what we do with our food. And there's a lot of reasons to feel that in the next five years, 10 years, especially with some changes that I anticipate will be coming uh, from the top down in the federal government, that we're going to start doing a lot better. And that means more people get to eat. And that means we emit less greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and those are two things I obviously care very much about. So in a nutshell, um, you know, it's, it's a good story. And it's a great book, too. I should add that Power Trip is an excellent book that I highly recommend. You know, another thing I'm really interested in seeing develop um, which there's work being done, and I'm not I'm not near expert as I want to be on, is how artificial intelligence is changing the way we think about moving things around, and just looking at the a truck that that's available that's going to go from point A to point B empty, and how to make sure you can use that truck truck to transport something that needs to move, and in the food industry that innovative thinking could really drive a substantial amount of savings both in terms of time but also in energy and it could also get more food fresh from farms or other other places in the food supply chain to somebody that needs it that didn't have access before and so while the estimates are still early in terms of trying to figure out that innovation and how much uh, money and energy that could save I'm really hopeful watching that develop that it could be a significant uh, you know, piece of what's gonna help us manage all of this stuff. I completely agree. And I think even more immediately, what we're seeing with AI in terms of smart agriculture and drone technology, and what I mean for folks listening that might not be as familiar, we are now flying drones over big agricultural fields that can monitor things like the color of the shade of green of an entire crop and figure out where things need a little more water or how they're being produced. There are sensors in the ground doing things like this too. There are all these teeny tiny ways we're able to tweak how we care for these crops and their staple crops that soy and corn and things that we grow all the time. Uh, but by having this kind of information, which is now all across, deployed all across the state and all around the country and starting to be deployed all around the world, more than starting, uh, we end up saving more water, saving more energy, saving resources and producing more because an area with different soil salinity might have different needs that now we can monitor and we can address. And farmers are doing really well with this. And we're also seeing things like really interesting new careers for students. We had a young woman graduate from Michigan State who uh, I believe she was a senior last year and she knew how to use a drone. She grew up on a farm, she knew how to use a drone and suddenly she has a business and she's out competing all these other guys uh, to get contracts to work with farmers because she knows how to do it and she's doing real well. And so I think we're seeing a lot of these, um, these jobs that are gonna boost the economy as well as do a lot for our environment and meeting the needs that we need to. And so. that's more potential donors for the food bank. Yes. Oh, wait. I guess that's not really directly related, but I just can't help myself. Well, they should be. They all should be.
It's who he is. It's who he is. <laughs> he gets it in on every show. Yeah, and, Gil, I'm terrible at that. That's wonderful, Gary. You know, you guys were talking about artificial intelligence, and of course, everybody knows I'm a little bit deaf. So I thought Jerry said limited intelligence. That's why I looked up because I thought he was talking about me. <laughs> but that's another show. So, hey, let's take a quick break. We're back here. Cheryl Kirschenbaum's our guest. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight. This is Food First Michigan. Food First Michigan. Once again, here's Phil and Jerry. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for listening. Cheryl Kirschenbaum is back with us. Jerry Brisson is here as always. And Cheryl, what's going on in San Antonio? Well, in San Antonio, a number of folks uh, have gotten together. So the Food Bank of San Antonio and some uh, folks associated with various universities in Texas and um, the people behind this, uh, this documentary we've been talking about, Power Trip. And they are hosting a community, virtual, of course, uh, mid-pandemic, but a virtual conversation about uh, the story of energy through the lens of food. So I'm gonna be part of that conversation. It's on February 4th. I'll be one of the panelists talking about how we'll meet our food insecurity challenges. And uh, while it is based in San Antonio, it's also free to stream. So I can share that, uh, that website later. I'm not sure if that's something that uh, we can kind of pop on to, to the show as a link or something, but sure. it, should be, it should be a good conversation. There's some, some really great people involved, experts in energy, experts in food. Um, people are gonna screen the documentary first, but there's no need to, and then start talking not just about what the challenges are, but what a community can do to come together and plan for the future. The 2021 Food Insecurity Smart Challenge. That's what it's part of, yes. That's pretty cool. You know, I, I just, you know, I love Texas. I love San Antonio. But, you know, I don't think I can really let them get too far ahead of us on this. We're going to have to start thinking about like something like this for Michigan. Let's do one at home. I'm in. You just tell me when. All right. That's great. Well, we've got you. We've got the great folks at... At that other school on the other, you know, down in Ann Arbor, uh, Luke Schaefer's been on here with us. Um, you know, we got we got Jerry, who is a national thought leader among our network in this work. Um, we've got all the right people, and three of them are right here. You know, well, I when, think that sounds wonderful. When I read "Smart Challenge," I thought, "Is this a challenge to be smart? Is that <laughs> what this is?" Because, man, I could probably use it. I, I, I would say, you know, what I really like about that idea is that a lot of the um, problems that we're trying to solve require groups of people getting together and hearing other perspectives, right? And, and at this time in particular, when we're talking a lot about national unity. Um, unity happens when people with different points of view get together and talk, right? And, and it's so important to learn these points of view. And one of the things that Dr. Phil and I have said a number, a number of times on our show is that everyone who wants to be part of the solution deserves a place in the conversation and deserves a place where they can take action. And if you start deciding who's not worthy or who doesn't belong, you end up lonely. 
in the end. And so having these challenges that invite whole communities of people to just come together and say, let's talk about this issue together, let's hear these different points of view, and let's start to figure out with all these points of view what makes the most sense to move forward next. I'm just excited about how that kind of activity is what really drives unity if that's your goal. I completely agree and I think we tend to learn about and think about all of our food challenge issues in silos, right? There's the, the, the folks that deal with um, income disparity and the folks that deal with distribution and, and the people who are thinking about this in terms of the data on who gets what and where it goes. And you're absolutely right. Only by coming together do we make things better. And it's, it's true for everything, but I, especially challenges like this. Yeah, we like to say that the less you know about a problem, the easier it is to solve, mm -hmm. right? And so, and so when you bring people together, you're going to learn things you didn't know. It's going to make things more complicated. And to start with, people get discouraged, and I understand. But really, if you're going to be serious about solving the problem, learning from those conversations and, and really using that information to drive better solutions is going to get you farther, not, not less far, right? So we, we keep open-minded. I love the idea of doing something here. We also talked about something else earlier in the show, and that is um, co-designing any solution with the people who are going to be receiving that solution, right? Um, the, I forget who said this. It might have been our producer, Mark, but I don't remember if that's true. But somebody said to, to Dr. Phil and I that, you know, when you have a, a, a conference of, let's say, firefighters, where you're going to talk about solutions of problem-solving fires, the people who come to the conference are the firefighters. When you have a problem like hunger relief, the people who come to the conferences aren't necessarily the hungry people. They're all the other people who are trying to do good, and I think that's something we have to change. We have got to be gathering more of the people who need this work to hear what their life is like. And we had a show recently where we highlighted stories from people who were coming to our lines to try to get the whole community to understand better what are the challenges people are actually facing and does this, um, you know, getting this food really provide relief and help and in what ways does it do that? And so I know, I, you know, I, it's easy for me to get excited about this, but, but reading about the SMART Challenge, it brings all of these things to mind for me about how you really solve complex problems. And it takes time, but it's worth it. I completely agree. And you just have me thinking about, um, so I work with different communities. I work with a lot of folks thinking about these kinds of issues. And, and then I work with uh, often environmentalists and something that I keep encountering are people who really want to support environmental policy and, and like sound environmental practice, but their solution is, well, we just have to convince everyone to be a vegetarian. And it was coming up so much that some of the folks at PBS and I did a, a short video about simply why that won't work. Um, and while producing meat and especially producing beef creates a lot of emissions and a plant-based diet is often healthy, uh, they have no idea that not everyone has access to all these vegetables. They don't understand that culture and religion can shape our diet and include these meat components and vegetable components. They, they just, they're not aware because they haven't experienced what life outside of their own experience might be. And so I, I just, I guess I'm echoing what you're saying, but I think that's a really powerful way to create change. Um, by including more people in the conversation. 
Well, one of my, in my world, it's about policy, right? The policies that exist in government and through legislation that either help create food security or hinder it. And I think that, that one of the things that our CEO at Feeding America, Claire, says is that um, hunger and food security should not be, it cannot be a bipartisan issue. Because in bipartisan work, you get to the lowest common denominator, and that's what everybody can finally agree on. Hunger and food security is not bipartisan. It's nonpartisan. And there's a lot we can agree on. And, and until somebody proves this to me wrong, I'm going to say that it's one of the social challenges that we have that can actually unite us and not divide us. Now, we might all get in a, might be a, a knife fight in a phone booth about how we're going to do this, but we're going we're gonna to get in there and we're going to figure this out together, as Jerry said, with everybody at the table, as what you're doing in San Antonio, so that, so that we don't have to, people don't have to live, and our culture, our society, our economy does not have to live under this toxic stress that hinders people from finding their next success. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's still so absurd to me. It will never not be absurd to me that there are people in the United States who don't have enough to eat. Given all we have, given the networks and the resources, it, it, it's, it's unfathomable to me that we haven't done more to support each other. And some people have so much and some people, I mean, I, I just I, I can't I can't um, comprehend that that anyone, but especially any child, doesn't right. have enough in a country like this. And we can't if we can't agree there, there's nothing we can agree on. That children should not go hungry. What do you say, Jerry? There's two words that should never go together. Child and hunger. Yeah, that that is the truth. And I didn't make that up. That was actually um, Rosalie Vicari who said that at one of our events. And uh, and she she just you know was was overwhelmed with emotion hearing how many kids were were going hungry and she just blurted it out like there are two words that should never go together and we we have you know used that because it it was such an honest and sincere reaction to the issue um, and so uh, so again you know thanks to Rosalie we we have that in our toolkit of things to say that people go yeah that is true there's no way you can argue with that so Cheryl we're coming to the end of this segment with you and so tell folks how they can find you oh I'm pretty easy to find um, if you just even look up my name with the spelling s-h-e-r-i-l you'll find me my last name's a bit more uh, complicated but Cheryl uh, Kirschenbaum.com or food.msu.edu thanks so much it's great. So thanks for doing this again with us. You, uh, you know, you, you're like the tide that raises all boats in the harbor. We all feel smarter after having a conversation with you. I always feel so good about the world after talking to both of you. This is such a treat and a really nice way to start this week. Or, no, close this week. I'm losing track of days uh, in the pandemic, I think. It's, it's Blur's Day. <laughs> yeah, it's Thursday, and until yet, until recently, it was the 13th month of 2020. But now, <laughs> the sun is out and the days are brighter. So, so God, yeah, thank you, Cheryl. Godspeed to you and your family, and thank you for how you're investing your one handful of life. 
you're making a difference. Well, as are you. Thank you both so much. Great to have you. Jerry and I are back to wrap up this edition of Food First Michigan in just a moment. Thanks for listening, everyone. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here to wrap up this show. Uh, our guest, uh, Cheryl Kirschenbaum, who is just so brilliant, Jerry. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, and a lot of the things that she talks about are really kind of controversial for some people. But when she talks about them, you know, it's like my liberal friends and my conservative friends. Like, I talk to them, and they're just mad about everything, you know. And I'm like, well, why do you want to be liberal or conservative and mad all the time. Cheryl <laughs> talks about stuff that's, you know, I mean, it's controversial in some circles for sure, and but she's so pleasant. Yeah, I mean, it's that saying, you know, people don't remember what you say, but they remember how you made them feel. And don't you feel good listening to Cheryl? You just feel good, you know what I mean? She's She is smart, and she is confident, but she's just so kind. And so what a delight to have her on the show again and to remind us that the challenges we face, though daunting, should not prevent us from optimism for the future. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm just, you know, I think that's our huge challenge here on this show and across our entire Feeding, uh, Feeding America National Network, the Food Bank Council of Michigan Network here with our seven food banks, that our mission, our challenge is to create positive change in the world of the, the folks and the families that, that deal with the uh, toxic stress of food insecurity. Well, and I think that's right, and I, and I think some pieces of that take more time than others, but there are always things we can do right now. And so you've got both those dynamics working in our favor. You know, we, we have the reasons we've talked about why we think hunger is solvable, and one of the reasons we think hunger is solvable is because so many people want to solve it. And so with that as a backdrop for what's possible, we know, well, we've, even since we started the show a few years ago, we've made huge strides. There was no way we could have met the needs of this pandemic 10 years ago. No way. Right. We weren't ready. We didn't have the partnerships. We didn't have the facilities. We didn't have the know-how. We didn't have all the relationships in the community we needed to have. But when this pandemic hit and the food bank network got going across the state, we were able to get enough food to people who were increasingly in need day after day after day after day, just from what we've learned over the last 10 years. So I believe that in the next 10 years, we will see more significant movement toward a safety net that works for everyone. When people need help so that they can move on to success in their life, it is so important. We all know it's important. We're dedicated to it. We've seen tremendous progress, and we're going to see more. That's great. Sign me up. I'm ready. <laughs> Well, we know all our listeners are ready. That's why they're here, too. Absolutely. Because we're a, we're a group of believers, and you know what? You need believers, right? You, you, what's another one of our sayings? You can't solve a problem you don't believe can be solved. That's right. Right? you got to believe, and, and, but it's more than belief. We have seen results, and if the last year hasn't taught us the kinds of results we know we can get now that we never got before, well, I mean, here we go. We're going to get better results. We are. And with smart people like Cheryl Kirschenbaum coming alongside of us, the sky's the limit. I believe that. I really do. Time for a little food for thought, Jerry. 
More people than I can remember are rallying around food security, both the need and the cause. And we are gaining greater understanding about the challenge of food insecurity and how to solve it. This grasp of the challenge comes from a myriad of perspectives, medical, social, personal, scientific, global, and yes, local. We are using data, analytic, analytics, technology from food production to distribution. We are seeing food insecurity through the lens of equity, both from a DEI perspective as well as viewing ourselves internally and evaluating how well are we meeting the need. The questions are big, tough, difficult, and hard. But as Jerry says, it's the work, baby. Can't hate the work. And he is right. The work is the work, and this is our work, and it's yours too. So how do we do this work, this hard, challenging work? No, not by eating an elephant at one bite at a time, but by the words we started and ended our very first show with some three years ago. Start by doing what is necessary, then what is possible, and before you know it, you are going to be doing the impossible. St. Francis's words guided us then, and they guide us today. Today, let's not focus on the enormity of the challenge, but focus on what we can do that is necessary today. And tomorrow, we'll work on what's possible. Join us here or download our podcast. Give some time, talent, and treasure to your local food bank, and together, we will do the impossible. Until then, we'll keep it food first, folks. Food first. Food First Michigan, presented by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state.